0: This week on the Bowag World Show, we finish the season with talks on finding inspiration in the physical world, kickoff checklists, and overcoming the post conference blues. This week's show is sponsored by Fresh Books and Full Story. to the Boag World Show, the last Boag World Show of this season, a podcast about all aspects of digital design, development and strategy. My name is Paul Boag and joining me for this final show, as always, is Marcus. Hello Marcus. Hello Paul. Yeah, I sort of feel a bit, sort of, a bit podcast fatigued yeah so do i actually you get to the end of a season and you go thank crap for that <laughs> yeah and we always come back in like a couple of months later and go
1: yeah brilliant brilliant yeah and now now i'm like kind of i think i think, it's I think partly, the listener feels like that as well yeah like wish they'd just shut up exactly <laughs> it's partly i'm i am feeling actually genuinely fatigued this morning though oh are uh, you yeah, well, A, it was a lovely bank holiday weekend with lots of lovely weather and drinking and eating and all that kind of thing. But it it was my son's first day at proper work today. Um, and I said, I'll take him to work because he hasn't, still hasn't learned to drive. Third test next week, fingers crossed. Um, so I said, well, I'll take you. It's your first morning. Uh, and it's basically, I did three hours driving this morning. Ugh. So I'm a little bit... Uh... Now, a bit beautiful weather and
0: beautiful countryside. I had to sort of drive down to West Sussex and then back across to Winchester. So it's very lovely. I weep for you. And I'm sure that, see, this is exactly the kind of thing that the listener gets fatigued of, <laughs> listening to us. Well, did you know,
1: I, I, so I, in, in, I, I kind of like to think that they, they, you know, they feel like they've got a little window into our boring lives. Uh, and, you know, a bit like a soap opera, they want to know what happens next.
0: Really? Maybe. Well, no, but it's not quite. I just made ex- that up. Most soap <laughs> operas seem to consist of murders and incest and things like that, not you driving your son to his first day at work.
1: But, but no, I would have. I know I would have mentioned him um, graduating a few yeah. Shows, yeah. shows back. So now he started work. He, uh, he started work at, at Tesla.
0: Which, oh no, it's, it's not the it, Tesla, it, is it? it it's, it's the
1: te- it's the Tesla that makes giant magnets that go in MRI machines and large hadron colliders. Big engineering place. It's quite cool, actually. It does sound quite cool, actually.
0: Yeah. Oh, I remember my first day at work at IBM. Ooh. That feels like forever ago. That's because it was, Paul. Yeah, good point. Good point. Well made there, Marcus. <laughs> it was a very long time ago. I had to I wear mean, my... a tie. I wore a tie on my first day at work. That didn't last.
1: No, what? Did it... Did surely not everybody wore ties at IBM unless you were in sales or something. No,
0: no, they didn't. But for some reason, I felt a need to wear a tie.
1: Okay. Because when I worked at R.J. Wiggins, which was my only big firm experience, everybody wore suit and tie. Unless you were kind of, uh, I don't know, in maintenance or something like that. Um, Every single person in the building wore suit and tie. And I can remember they used to have probably, I don't know, once a quarter, they would have a dress down Friday and there would be uh letters and notes from certain people saying that they thought it was standards were slipping oh. and, it, and, and it shouldn't happen all this kind of thing it's hilarious but that was 20 years ago so i, I suspect things have
0: changed because we didn't we end, we were actually working in buildings next to one another without us knowing one another weren't we yeah where's IBM
1: in Basingstoke then well, it's it, next door isn't it
0: yeah it was next door to um to yeah the RJ Wiggins building it was I can't remember the name of it now we had a roof garden is all yeah, I remember. We, we did as well you, yeah
1: you, they, they were both built next at the, the same time yeah uh, uh, uh and yeah ours was the one nearest to the uh, the AA tower and yeah. you're the one foot nearer, nearer to the town center fabulous building they were no. That place had its, you know, had a canteen where you could have a full English mm-hmm. breakfast for for ten p. Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm exaggerating to make the point, point. and they had a it had a bar with a snooker table in it. Oh, we didn't have a bar. Fantastic! How about that? You know, so you go down to the bar at lunch.
0: Nice. Anyway, yeah. Isn't that weird, Mind, that we ended up working next to each other before we even knew each other existed.
1: I know. Oh, Small world, as is. they say. Well, I
0: suppose <laughs> you know the probability isn't you know that amazing as we would have then you know we if we lived on opposite sides of the planet we probably wouldn't have ended up working together later would we really
1: no i guess living in the same county was a start but yeah. It's still quite it is still quite a coincidence yeah i guess so it's been a good season mine has not it i've I'd- enjoyed this and my favorite talk is on this show today which I, oh, no, now, I mustn't say that. So one of the talks is my favourite one. But that's I tell you really
0: one interesting because the same is true with me. <laughs> I am going to say which one it is. So I'm going to say which one it is. I wonder whether it's the same one. That's really interesting. But we, I mean, let's be honest. The the quality of the talks has been incredibly high. Don't you think? Yeah. Yes, wonderful. I mean, we've true. had 35 talks over the season, and bearing in mind the vast majority of people have never done a talk before that i think the quality is brilliant and i uh,
1: yeah i think it's something that should be revisited and do it again in two or three seasons time
0: yeah i agree well it's definitely something worth doing again yeah. so yeah there we go amazing stuff we ought to but we ought to push on because we've got three talks to do this week so it's quite yeah. a lot to get in i'll try not to rabbit too much okay so we're gonna we're gonna do um the the first one um I, I, I'm just going to say it's from Sophia V.
1: <laughs> It'll be Voitchovsky. Well, I would have thought. That's how yeah, you that's it. not
0: too bad actually. it just went the, the surname just went on for a long time. It, you know when you write it out. Yeah. So it put me off. Well, yeah, it's, it's pronounced
1: pronounced exactly Voitchovskiy, but I reckon it's Voitchovsky.
0: Yeah. That's well, even guess. even she like truncated it to <laughs> Sophia V. <laughs> So I figured I was safe doing that. So Sophia is the founder of Rewired, which is a UX studio based in Atlanta. Um, She's done loads of cool things. But the thing that jumped out to me is before she set that up, she worked for, worked for huge organizations like AT&T and various other people, but uh, including the, the Australian tax office. Now, as somebody that seems to be working in... The U.S. mainly. That seemed like a bit of a weird one. But what she did do is the CNN responsive election night experience in 2012 and again in 2016, which I'd heard of. So she's Internet famous. Yeah, Yeah, that was really that CNN responsive election night thingy was really quite impressive. Cool. But I won't bother boring you with what it's about. But what she's talking about uh, here is really, really interesting. It's, her talk is called Caveman UX, um, and it's all about the physical constraints and, 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 and of the physical world, you know, um, and h- whether that should be carried across into digital. But if, before we listen to her talk, if you want to check out a little bit more on her, you can find out more about her at uh, rewiredux.com. Um, there's loads of information on her then uh, and what she does right so should we listen to a talk yeah because i like this one so here we go caveman ux
2: what does it really mean for a design to be intuitive we user experience designers will often say if a design is intuitive it behaves how a user expects it to behave so the next question which may or may not be obvious is well, what do users expect? What are their assumptions? And here's where it gets a little fuzzy I think. We might say well it depends on the context or it depends on the product or the user or the user's experience with other products or the time of the day. Uh, we'll say we need data and we need usability testing to tell us what our users are going to expect from a given product. and. This all might be true, but I believe there's a baseline of expectations that we UX designers are just not talking about enough. And that's the, these are the assumptions that any user, any human will have about any space they enter, whether that space is digital or not. So for an example, if you have an iPhone, get it out. Um, if you happen to be driving and listening to this, pause the audio, pull over, don't do this while driving. Um, or actually you can just imagine the, pulling out your iPhone and thinking through the interaction um, that I'm about to describe. You know your iPhone pretty well, um, so you can probably just follow along in your head on this one. So what I want you to do, or imagine doing, is turning your volume up and down on your iPhone. Okay. So that was pretty easy, right? Um, for non-iPhone users, the volume control, it's just two buttons um, on the side of the device, on the left-hand side of the device, and the top button turns the volume up, and the bottom button turns the volume down. And so, of course, this is a, this is a very simple interaction, but what if I told you this could be even easier? That so this could be even simpler. So iPhone users, answer me this. What visual feedback did your iPhone give you as you were turning the volume up and down with the physical buttons on the outside of the device? Did the visual on-screen indicators, did they move up and down mimicking your physical motion? No, (laughs) no they didn't. The graphic representation of the volume moving up and down actually goes right to left. And the assumption that I can make, or the guess that I'll make about this, is this is perhaps a vestige of right and left um, visual indicators, um, perhaps on car stereos, um, other kinds of um, older stereos, where the volume is turned up and down with a dial which actually does require a physical right and left motion when you turn that dial. So that visual right to left indicator actually would make a lot of sense. But on the iPhone, the cause, the user pressing up and down buttons actually doesn't mimic the effect, which is the right and left graphic bars and also the volume actually going up and down. This is a beautiful and simple example of unintuitive design. And it's unintuitiveness, it traces back to the fact that the digital interaction does not align with what users have evolved to understand about the physical world. Okay, so you might be thinking, no big deal. I've barely even noticed this and it's never affected my ability to turn the volume up and down. But... I think that over a couple million, million maybe, interactions a day across all iPhone users turning their volume up and down, that this adds up. That we're probably losing buckets of mental power as the tiny bits of cognitive energy is wasted on iPhone users translating this physical input to the visual feedback. Our brains, they've evolved in physical space. And as we design with bits and pixels, this removes products from the constraints of that physical space. So that is a, it's actually not always a good thing. Uh, our brains, they come with like this baggage from all those years of working with mainly rocks and dirt. We have these really deep-seated beliefs about how things should operate in space. Pushing something up should make it uh, go up. It should not make it move to the right. But when we enter digital spaces and use digital tools, the laws of physics, they're no longer at play. UX and UI designers can disconnect the on from the off and the right from the left and the up from the down. And because they can, they do. They do it at Apple, they do it at Google, and you or your designers um, on your team, they might be doing it on a project right now. So we might say, well, isn't the freedom from all those kind of petty rules of physics? Isn't that the very best thing about the digital world? Right? You can um you can uh teleport with hyperlinks, and a million people can read the same article without killing one tree. And you can be in three places at once, and you can autocorrect your terrible spelling, and you can undo, and you can unsend, and you can even unfriend. And in seconds, you can find all the blue sandals in the warehouse of a million shoes. It's this freedom from physics in the digital space that just makes the magic of digital possible. But for some real talk, if it's not done right, magic is scary and it's confusing and it's disorienting. And even though our digital world can be 100% liberated from physical constraints, that doesn't mean it should be. So when is it okay to break the laws of physics, and when should we hold true? So that's that's my big question. That's what I'm working on right now. I'm working to outline a set of principles, and in the next few minutes, I'm just going to explore two of those principles that I've been working through. So, the first one that I want to talk about is a belief that humans are always going to bring to any environment or product, and that is the belief that an inverse action is going to have an inverse effect. So, in the real world, if I lock a door by turning a key to the left, I should unlock that door by turning the key to the right. That's what I'm going to expect. And if I turn a faucet on by moving the handle up, I'm going to expect that moving the handle down will turn that faucet off. If I move a dial to the right to make uh, the water hotter or anything hotter, the temperature hotter, um, dialing it to the left is going to make it cooler, et cetera, et cetera. And when industrial designers create physical products, this is actually, it's easier to make things like this true than not true. for designers of digital products, it's really just as easy for us to design and develop these paired interactions that are actually separated from each other because there's no levers, there's no switches, there's, um, there's, no, uh, there's no physics to be beholden to. And this gets us in trouble. So to illustrate this, I'm going to actually, I'm going to pick on iPhone one more time. So if you have an updated iPhone, you may have discovered a new shortcut to getting to your camera. From the lock screen, you can just swipe from the right to the left to open up your camera. So what happens though when you perform the inverse of that action? Swiping left to right while you're in your camera. So the assumption here, if we take this idea of uh, you know, turning the key to the right locks the door and turning the key to the left unlocks the door, what we might try to do is swipe from left to right to actually relock the phone. But instead, we actually switch to video mode because the camera app has its own swipe interaction. So about one in three times that I try to close my camera after entering from this method, I accidentally switched to video. I've tested this with several Android users. I show them an iPhone uh, that's on its lock screen. I open up the camera and I ask them how they would return to that lock screen that we were just on. And all of them say that they would swipe in the opposite direction. So Apple didn't think about the full loop of the interaction, but I would encourage all of you to do exactly this. Think about if your interaction had an inverse. Have you designed how your system is gonna respond to that? And if so, would your users expect this response? Okay, so let's look at one more belief that humans are gonna bring with them to your design. And that's the belief that when I return to where I came from, I'll end up in the space that I was previously. So in the physical world, to to give an example of what I'm talking about here. If I exit the living room, say, and I go to the bathroom, and when I exit the bathroom, I'm gonna expect to be in the living room, especially if I exit through that same door. Um, If I exit through that same door, if I exit the bathroom and I end up in the backyard, um, that's gonna be be very disconcerting to me. Um, But in digital spaces, This type of navigation happens all the time. So this time, instead of picking on Apple again, let's pick on our friends over at Google, and specifically Google Photos. So when I open up Google Photos in the browser, I see a stream of all my photos that have been synced. And the most recent photos are there at the top, and it just kind of breaks it down day by day. So let's say I scroll down a bit, and I see some photos that I want to add to an album. I want to organize those photos, so I select the photos and I click the Add button and I tell Google that I want those selected photos to be added to a new album and Google photos they very nicely oblige and they take me to this new album um, that has just been created and here i can I can name the album for now, for example's sake, let's call it honeymoon so here in my new honeymoon album, I can see all those photos that I selected are there. I can actually rearrange the photos. Um, and then in the top left corner, there's a check mark. And I assume correctly that this check mark means I'm done here. So on clicking that check mark, I exit edit mode, and I'm still there in my uh in my honeymoon album, but my honeymoon album is now just in a view mode. Um, so so far so good. Everything's cool. I've created a new album, and um, I'm feeling pretty good about it. Now, where the check mark was, there is now an arrow that points to the left. And most sane people in the modern world would call this a back button. So, where exactly should this take me? Should it maybe take me back to where I was? <laughs> to all photos and hopefully even scrolled to exactly uh, exactly where I was when I left off. So in the case that maybe I would scrolled all the way back to 2013 and I made that album and I went there and I did, made some edits to that album and then I exited the album by clicking that little back button, I would hope that it would take me back to right where I was in 2013, right? So I wouldn't have to scroll all the way back there and take kind of continue um, picking up where I left off. But this is not what happens when I click that back button. Google Photos actually takes me to the all album screen, a list of all of my albums. This is a screen that I have not even touched within this web session. Or we could even say this is a room that I have not even been to since entering Google's Google Photos house. (laughs) So to Google back, Actually meant a level up in their sitemap. So if I'm in an album, Google's thinking, okay, back to all albums with you. But for me, back meant something completely different. Google didn't think about the user's path through the environment and what back would mean to the people that are actually moving through that space. So it's fine to have teleporting in digital space, in digital spaces. It's actually really awesome that I could if I wanted to design my system in a way I could wormhole uh, from the foyer to the attic in just one click. Uh, but what we need to do is we need to make sure that our user knows and intends to go through that wormhole. So we need to label our wormholes very clearly. And the back button, well, the user is going to expect to go back to where they came from, not back to the previous step and perhaps your happy path user flow or um, up a level in the hierarchical site map that is sort of nicely, beautifully printed and pinned to your boss's bulletin board. So think about what back or out or exit means to the user and to the experience that they're having. So there's many more assumptions that we can use to actually create this baseline for digital design, for intuitive digital design. And generally, just avoid designing these environments that feel like M.C. Escher drawings. (laughs) So on top of watching out for those nonsensical uh, inverse interactions and kind of avoiding surprise teleportations, there's so many more things we can do. So if you like what you heard here and you want to hear about all the principles for Caveman UX, please follow me on the Twitters. That's SophiaVUX, S-O-P-H-I-A, V V as in Victor, UX. And you can also check out all of my content on Object-Orient UX at www.rewiredux.com.
0: So is this one your favorite one, Marcus? No ah <laughs> no no it, it wasn't uh, I, I... it was see now that's weird because this was my favorite talk of the entire season okay because
1: i oh, it's, it's, i don't want to be uh coming across as critical but i just found it a little bit is this not kind of lee's yellow steering wheel stuff we we get we don't need to kind of highlight you know we we understand how to do certain things without having it kind of Highlighted to us. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, I
0: I do. I do. I do see what you're saying, but you're wrong.
1: Okay, tell me why I'm wrong, Paul.
0: Well, uh, these little things. I mean, for a start, I I, this is really a sad reflection on me. But (laughs) but when Sophia said about the volume button on the iPhone, Mm -hmm. I actually gasped out loud. (laughs) <laughs> That's how sad and easily impressed I am. Yeah, it, honestly, I was like, oh, yeah, it really does. Wow. and we've, that, got it, we've got enormous brains and we can deal with it. Yes, we can, right? And I agree with that. And I do see where you're coming from. But all of these little things, you know how you go to some websites or you're using some app and it just, it annoys you. Right? Oh, absolutely, and yes. I couldn't f- agree more with, the, with the general your, principle. Yeah, and you, but and you can't put your finger on one thing that annoys you about it, right? Mm-hmm. But and it's because these little things, kind of, add up. It's like death by a thousand cuts, isn't it?
1: Mm.
0: Oh, it's just you know. I mean, the Google back. Um, yeah, well, example. I was going to say,
1: yeah. That, that the, I don't agree with the iPhone. Thing. Yes, okay. Why is it going side to side when you're going up and down? I can understand. The kind of logic behind why that possibly isn't great ux but i disagree i think we can we make we're we're doing an action and it's showing something changing we can instantly work out with our with our big brains what that means whereas the the google photos example i couldn't agree with more that that is spot on um and you and but that's more like kind of you know that's good information architecture it's it's good user journeys it's you know ensuring that we understand that if somebody goes into a particular <clears throat> process at a, a particular point, they might have a, a different, uh, you know, they, they might have a different in and out point to somebody who starts at the beginning and finishes at the
0: end. And yeah, absolutely right. What I about the, the about. camera one? Because I've done that camera one, the one where she said you flick one, you flick uh, right to left or whichever it was to get the camera up, and then you go to flick back and it it goes to video mode instead uh, that, I, that drives me nuts i
1: i i agree with that one but i'm a, i don't think it's not been thought about i think it's i think it's probably a case of apple's designers or whoever did did that made that decision thinking people know that if they want to go back to kind of home or lock screen or whatever they've got two buttons one button will take them back to the, excuse me, to the lock screen, or another one will take them to their
0: home yeah, screen. Yeah, I know that. I absolutely yeah, do know that. and everybody knows that. Yeah, and <laughs> I do know that, but I still sw- uh, flick instead. I still do what she says, because mm-hmm. because in that, you're not, you don't do those things on a conscious level. You don't think, okay, now's the time to... I agree with the volume one. The volume one, although it's ridiculous... It, it doesn't stop the usability, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't. You don't find yourself making a mistake. In fact, the fact that I've quite happily used volume all, ever, you know, f- for years and never even noticed that problem shows that it's not a big issue, right? Mm-hmm. It is an inconsistency. It's silly. It should be the other way. She's right that it's wrong, if that makes sense. But it, it doesn't damage the experience anyway. But with the camera one. I actually, I do find myself switching in the wrong direction. I do find myself, because I'm doing it at a purely instinctive level. And that, Mm -hmm. I think, is the point that she was driving home about, Mm. is that so much of our interactions, certainly with things that we use on a regular basis, is done at a subconscious level. It's like driving. You don't think about driving. You just do it once you've got used to it. Um, but the thing is, is that if something isn't intuitive, if something doesn't work in that kind of subconscious way, then you start to have problems. I think.
1: Yeah, yeah and yeah, I I I don't disagree um, with the camera example. I think it's probably a case of. You, you, I suspect that a choice had to be made of well, this would be the ideal, but we can it's not completely unusable if we expect people to use a different button but i suspect
0: wh- but why couldn't you swipe swiped up and down instead of left and right i don't know yeah exactly know. but it, that's that's the point i mean it it reminded me a little bit as well because also you've got to think about um so as a, an individual if you have a lot of those little problems within a site then you start end up thinking or an app you start thinking oh i don't like this I don't really know why I don't like it but I don't like it so that's the death by a thousand cuts but then there's the other aspect of it which is when you're working at scale which you've got to remember Sophia has done for a big part of her career you know she's been working mm-hmm. with CNN AT&T you know big organizations Apple is another great example that some a little annoyance like that adds up hugely you know the classic story about the boot time on the first mac do you know this story uh, I,
1: I will do when you remind right. me of it so so so
0: the, <laughs> yeah i know what you mean um, <laughs> the the story with the mac is that um when when steve jobs fo- saw the mac for the first time before it even booted mm. up he was complaining he was saying it was taking too long to boot and the the engineer said well it's only you know, it's not taking that long. What's your problem? He says, I need it to be 10 seconds quicker. And he says, 10 seconds doesn't make a big deal. You know, what's the big deal about 10 seconds? And Steve Jobs said, well, okay, we've got, you know, let's say we've got 2 million users booting up twice a day, all right, at 10 seconds a time, that adds up to lifetimes of people's You're actually killing people by by, you know, it taking too long to boot up. That
1: <laughs> logic doesn't work. It's, a, it's, an invi- it's an individual 10 seconds for each user. You can't add them together.
0: I, I know what you mean. And <laughs> yes, of course, you're not really killing people. I mean, that's bollocks. <laughs> but there is a it, when you are dealing with scale, when, when you are dealing with a lot of people, those little things do matter because they do inconvenience a shitload of people.
1: I think, with that particular example, I think that there is a point, and it might be different for different people, where you think, hang on, this is taking too long. Um, And I suspect that's what was the case. Although, blimey, when was this, in the 70s? Oh, yeah, ages ago, yeah. So, I mean, what was the benchmark to measure it against? Yeah, exactly. But I've I've noticed that Macs are are taking much longer to um, boot up and um and and shut down now than they did five years ago Mm. but Mm. that's because steve's not around to complain i suspect probably anyway i I, i'm not disagreeing i guess i'm playing i'm playing devil's Devil's advocate advocate. a little bit on this one because i don't think that there's anything wrong to a certain extent in allowing people to use their brains to learn how
0: to use something something should be as simple as it can be Mm. without I mean, it's like I'm not expecting a you know an aircraft cockpit to be simple. It's got to be yeah. as simple as it can be for what it is you're trying to do. And I do think it. I think it is worth personally. I mm. think it's worth you know. Well, I, I the mentioned
1: Lee, Lee's yellow steering wheel, uh, which I've I've done the whole story in, in the past, but um, he used that as an example of someone who's never driven a car doesn't need to have. Uh, the steering wheel made yellow and say that has you know steer the vehicle written on with this tool it's obvious
0: yes by its nature yes and i agree you are right when it comes to the volume i think yes it is a yellow steering wheel example um but it doesn't mean that it would the indicators shouldn't go up and down it should for, yes, from a should. consistency point of view perhaps that's my 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 um kind of obsessive compulsive disorder kicking in then uh, yeah we all have different versions of that i
1: know we i know we shouldn't be rambling on but i was doing a crossword right on uh sunday afternoon uh, and my brother was brother-in-law was filling it in uh, and we would he misspelled a word and he just kind of overwrote the, it was meant to be an E instead of an I, so and he just overwrote the E on top and I said, No, you can't do that. You have to rub it out. You turn the pencil <laughs> over and rub it out. And so cause I know I'm saying sorry, a bit OCD, but I don't like I don't like messy crosswords. So he rubs it out and then he with the rubber kind of rubs little bits of the black squares out. And he's uh-uh. like oh, that can't be there, and then it has to, then it has to fill all the bits back in again on the black ones. So different types of OCD Paul, I think.
0: Yeah, that was awful. <laughs> but yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay we really need to move on we were supposed to not i won't talk anymore we were supposed to be doing these quickly (laughs) we really have done badly all right let's talk about full story i'm I'm not going to rush the sponsors because full story have supported the entire season i refuse to they've been lovely so i love full story Uh, this is my last chance to say to you for goodness sake go and give them a go it's absolutely free no need to enter a credit card. You get a thousand sessions recorded per month uh, you 've got no excuse not to please please try it yourself because it is absolutely cool it 's much more insightful than Google analytics we've talked uh, so much about them um, that i don 't think I need to say a huge amount. Um, but you can you can learn so much about somebody's behavior through watching these session sessions play back. You know, being able to watch a user interacting on your site um, in real time in their natural environment, you know? Not like a usability test session where you're bringing them into a lab and, you know, they know they're being watched. Um, it's great for diagnosing problems with your site. And you can drill down as well and you can look at... Um, you know, you see them do something weird, and you think, well, is there anybody else that's doing that same thing? And you can easily find out without having to worry about event handlers or all the crap you have to put on with something like Google Analytics. Um, and it just is absolutely brilliant. Please, please tr- go and try it. Fullstory.com forward slash B-O-A-G. Um, if ever there was a, a product that I could get excited about, it is Fullstory. Right. Uh, Matthew is back We have had him uh, on the show a little while ago um, Yeah, this
1: confused me I'm thinking Paul sent me, sent me the wrong one
0: No, nice. he submitted two uh, talks There's nothing wrong with two talks And he was really good Well done him Wasn't he? His last, yep. his last talk was really good So getting him back again to talk again makes a lot of sense He's a pro- um, product designer based in Brooklyn um And he works primarily with large enterprises um, on both mobile and desktop products. You can find out more about him. I'm going to spell. Uh, let's go for his Twitter ID this time. Last time we, we said his website. This time we can say his Twitter ID. So if you want to follow him on Twitter, find out what other stuff he's up to. It's Matty652 on Twitter. Um, Mm -hmm. And he's writing a book at the moment about this kind of stuff. And it it looks like it's going to be a really good book. So it's definitely worth following him. I had a little chat with him, didn't he? He wanted to ask me some questions about uh, the book he was writing on. So we had a little chat recently. And it looks like it's going to be a really good book. Okay, so he is talking about a product design kickoff checklist. So if you're designing a product, what needs to go on your kickoff checklist? And,
3: um, yeah, this is what he had to say on the subject. Hi, my name is Matthew Voschel, and I'm a designer in New York City. Uh, This lightning talk, I'm going to talk about uh, my idea for a product design kickoff checklist. This is the information designers should make sure they have to consistently create amazing products. Um, This came actually after completing a project where I tend to always perform a retrospective from a design aspect, to understand what I could have done better. Oftentimes, the issues I discover tend to be challenges that other designers and companies are also dealing with. The main issue I've noticed lately uh, is that products that flop, they fail because they try to build a solution before truly understanding the problem. Now, stop me if you've heard this before, but if you truly define the problem, what info do you really need? Where do you even start? Your goals for this initial stage involves answering the following What's the problem statement, who's going to use it, and what are their processes? Obtaining this data is often seen as a, quote, waste of time, unquote, or something that delays wireframes or designs from being created. In a sense, yes, if you attempt to answer those questions, it will indeed annoy your project managers and make your stakeholders anxious. But like amazing food at a five-star restaurant, good things come to those who wait. The research collateral you'll have at the end of this process is a product story, personas, workflow diagrams, and a product story map. These items will play a pivotal role in establishing the foundational understanding around the problems you should be solving with this product. Now, no matter how hard you're pressured as a designer, you should never attempt to design a product without having at least a cursory understanding of the statements I said earlier around uh, what's the problem statement, who's going to use it, and what are their processes. Um, now let's talk a little bit about the deliverables, the product story. What is the target for this product? What problems is it going to solve? In a meeting known as a kickoff, the product team, stakeholders, and users should usually establish a product story. A uh, product story should be about one or two sentences, and consider this the product's elevator pitch. Uh, I love Trello's, uh, and Trello says, quote, Trello lets you work more collaboratively and get more done. It's very, very short, very to the point. You know exactly what this product is going to do from a very high level. Uh, This story will set the scope and the target for what this product should actually do and kind of serve as like a north star to to what you're eventually going to design. Uh, The second are personas. Who is actually going to use this product? Understanding the users and their behavior, both quantitatively and qualitatively, will impact the usability and functionality of your product. Building personas will come from data obtained through contextual user interviews. Um, and kind of the adage I always tend to use is if you're designing for everyone, you're designing for no one. And a lot of people will actually say that, but believe it or not, it's pretty true. Um, the next are workflow diagrams. This really gets to understanding how do the users work? What are their processes? And this is also obtained through contextual user interviews and Uh, are illuminated through EML diagrams that you can use Lucidchart or Visio or whatever tool you like best, even Sketch. Um, These steps identify what the persona is taking to complete a task or reach some certain goal. Um, This is really uh, informative in understanding what needs to be shown when. This is to the point I made in another lightning talk that you should really conform the software to how the person's working instead of trying to confirm conform how the person is currently working to the way that the software works. Uh, finally, the product story map. Which features, which use cases should be considered within the product design? The product story map helps understand the epics and user stories that should be considered. It's referred to as Situational Design by Don Norman in Living with Complexity, a book that I love. And if you haven't read, I absolutely tell you, you really should read it. But the product story map is a master backlog, and it's kind of a living document for all the use cases matched to a personas workflow that are required to be addressed by the design. Now, there are kind of little tidbits and things and things you should understand about when you're doing this. So when you're really trying to solve what the problem is the product is solving, if you know it and it's been given to you by the stakeholders, great. If it's not, you really need to sit down with the stakeholders, with people in the strategic positions, product managers and the such, and really sit down and try to understand in a very cohesive way what you're trying to solve. And Second, who are you designing for? Uh, do you know who these people are? If you haven't, you should sit down and try to identify those roles and personas. Next, if the personas already exist, that's great. Take them and use them in your design. If not, then you need to actually go put those personas together by performing contextual or interview user interviews. If you're working with a company and they already have personas made, make sure you check the source material they use to create the personas. Uh, A bunch of times I've seen uh, people tell me, oh, yeah, we have personas or, yeah, we have user stories. And I go and read them and motivations are missing or uh, business requirements are missing. So make sure that whatever the source material that was used is actually valid uh, to create those personas. Next, how do they work? A lot of times, especially from the stakeholder side, they have an expected way that they should work. But nine times out of ten, when you actually perform those user interviews, you'll find out there's actually a reality to how they work. Um, if you know how they work, create diagrams from the interviews. If somebody's already given you diagrams, great. Then use those workflow diagrams to understand and, and formulate your information architecture and usability. Uh, also what are the user goals? This is really kind of understanding the user epics and their journeys. Um, if you know, start filling it into a product story map. Uh, by the way, if you don't know what a product story map is, Jeff Patton has an amazing book around it, around it. I really suggest that you read it. Um, have you identified the epics and journeys themselves? This is actually kind of a little bit of a difficult task as well. Uh, And you need to sit down again with stakeholders and users and really try to look from a strategic level to understand the big epics that they're trying to accomplish. And those things will kind of end up in the product story map. Uh, And lastly, what are the requirements? So these are really going to be coming from the stakeholders, more from the users. Um, But this is where you need to define the acceptance criteria, as I call them, um, for each user story. Um, Doing it in a product story map. Allows you visually to understand, especially using post-it notes of different colors, where your epics are, where your journeys are, where your stories are. And a lot of times I can see very quickly and visually that maybe two out of the you know, 40 stories will actually have requirements. And that tells me, okay, we need to sit down with the stakeholder to make sure that we're hitting the requirements needed. Otherwise, we're just going to be spinning our wheels and designing and designing and designing and not really getting uh, anywhere at all. Um, for more on this, please check out my uh, website, uh, medium.com slash at and look for the article described uh, product design kickoff checklist. Thanks a lot, and good luck. So there you go. That is Matthew's
0: thoughts on product design kickoff checklists. Try saying that fast.
1: Um, it was good yep very good Uh, I'm not going to say much I'm going to be quick a couple of things that I got out of that Mm -hmm. one was the kind of he talked a lot at the start of it about the importance of research which we all we all should know anyway Mm -hmm. but it reminded me of a previous talk that I went back and looked up who said it which was Megan Hartman about the idea of doing kind of pre-user research where you're in listen only mode Mm. in air air quotes Mm. um because I kind of... I can remember at the time saying, that's great, we must do that. And then I forgot. Um, but it reminded me of that again. It's a kind of like phase zero. Yeah. Just go, go and listen to what, what users are saying in Facebook groups and stuff like that. So that was great. And the
0: other one was epics. Did you know what an epic was? I had to look it up and I've learned something. So yeah. there you go. So, so an epic... <laughs> For, the, for listeners, because it's, he, he, he talked about epics without designing them. So, basically, an epic is a collection of user stories, right, yeah. on a similar theme. So, a user story is something very specific, like, um, I can't think of one now, my brain has gone completely blank. You know, I am, I am a whoever. I want to, you know, sign up for a newsletter so that I can get spammed. Right, not a very common <laughs> epic. Oh, sorry, common user story, but then you can kind of. Um, but another user story might be I am a whoever, I want to unsubscribe from a newsletter, so I stop being spammed. Right, and together, those two would both be part of an epic about newsletter signups and management. All right, makes sense? Yep. That yep. makes sense, does not it? Did I get it that did. right? I think so, based on what I looked at, all about human-centred
1: design processes.
0: Yes. One thing that I hadn't come across before was the idea of a problem statement. I have many problems (laughs) that need stating. (laughs) No, I mean I'd come across obviously when I do empathy maps I always talk about what problem you're solving but I hadn't ever I like the idea of express you know expressing an entire product that you're producing in the context of solving a problem. That's good. Yeah. And
1: okay. that helps helps legitimize all your subsequent design decisions. You exactly. can keep Gary referring back to it. Yes. Mm-hmm. And
0: I also liked his his um, uh, his whole thing of Uh, if you design for everybody you design for nobody
1: you've said that before paul
0: well i know i say a slightly different thing i say design for somebody alienate nobody
1: okay so it it shows how much i listen to you
0: yeah (laughs) well it it does show that i listen but not very carefully exactly (laughs) so it's good talk by matthew i liked that one right let's move on to our next sponsor i'm speeding things up now well done paul our next sponsor is fresh books who've have been a um a huge support on this show not just this season but previous seasons as well um it's a, an intuitive and it, i was going to say an intuitive and easy to use but isn't that essentially the same thing i think it probably Ooh, is well know. based on what we were talking about
1: earlier maybe not intuitive is the steering wheel not the yellow one just a normal yeah. steering wheel Easy to use could be something that needs to be explained. Yeah. So,
0: hmm. Mm. Anyway. They are different. They let you send invoices <laughs> in yeah. a easy-to-use, intuitive, and simple fashion. Ace. Um, so, it only takes you about 30 seconds to create and send an invoice, which is pretty fast. Perhaps I should have said fast. Anyway. <laughs> Getting distracted now. You could also customize it with your logo, color scheme, all that kind of thing that you'd want to do. Um, and your clients can pay online, which can seriously improve how quickly you get paid, trust me. Um, and you also know when they've seen your invoice. Oh no, we didn't receive the email. Bollocks, you didn't. Um, And you can automatically send out late payment reminders, which is very nice. You don't have to spend hours chasing down clients. Um, They've got a deposit feature, which enables you to take a deposit upfront, which is always a good idea, kids. Never have payment (coughs) on on delivery. Bad. Um, And you can go and try all this out. Give it a go. See what you think. You get uh, a month of unrestricted use. Anybody who's listening to the show can get that without even having to enter a credit card, which I'm very anti. Um, all you need to do is go to freshbooks.com forward slash Boag And when you sign up, please enter um, Boag World UX show in the How Did You Hear About section. Because then they love us all the more. So our very last talk of season 18, our open mic season. It seems kind of appropriate, and I've held it back. Sorry, Wayne. I've held a Wayne's talk back, which is not nice of me, really, because I felt like it was a good one to finish the season on, Um, and it's about overcoming post-conference blues, right? So it's the idea that you've learnt a load of stuff at a conference and you go back to work and nobody gives a shit. (laughs) right this is my favorite talk oh uh, this is your favorite talk yes um and uh, i just think this is such good and even listening to some, uh, you know this season of the podcast you know it, it, it can feel a bit like that you've heard some great talks you've heard people talk about lots of interesting things but now how do you persuade people to actually do any of it so that's what this this is really all about um, just a little bit about Wayne um, He's he looks like he's been sorry uh, That I I need to reword that <laughs> <laughs> maybe so, just shall I edit that bit out Paul I, I, t- I was going to say he looks like he's been doing this almost as long as me
1: oh well that's kind of alright because that makes you well I don't know it depends how old he is, <laughs>
0: well, <there> is <laughs> if a- he's
1: 25 then that's an insult Paul yeah
0: <laughs> I, I've got the photo, you know. I've got his, his photograph here because we've always put those in the show notes, and he he looks of a comparable age. I'm really sorry, Wayne, if you're like young, but he does say he's been programming for many years. Oh well, there you go. So there you go. Um, and uh, I can't read the URL. Oh no, I can do actually because it's it's, it's medium dot com uh, forward slash at symbol t h u m e c o is where you can find out more about his kind of stuff, where he writes about the kinds of things that he writes about, which I don't know what that is. Stuff to (laughs) do with programming, probably, I'm guessing. But this isn't about programming. This is about overcoming post-conference blues. Ladies and gentlemen, Marcus's favorite talk. I'd like to talk about overcoming
4: post-conference blues or bringing the excitement of a conference back to work with you. Have you ever been to a conference that inspired you so much that you wanted to go back to work and change the world? That happened to me at the very first Smashing Conference in New York City. I don't think I slept for four days. Both the conference in New York City excited me One morning I left the hotel at 5 a.m. with the intention of walking through Central Park before the conference. It turned out that it was much larger than I imagined, over 778 acres. Over three hours and several miles later, I emerged from the top of Central Park to find that I was over four miles away from a conference that started at 9 a.m. I I had to take a cab, and that really got my adrenaline pumping because taking a cab through New York City at rush hour is something as a treat that you don't want to miss. That was the perfect way to prepare my mind for the inspiration, creativity, and excitement that followed. I returned to work ready to share that knowledge and push forward some ideas I had for improvement. At First, it went well. I, I gave a presentation to a small group of people in marketing, which was received well. Then I presented to my team at work. And wow, what a bunch of stone faces they were. Uh, nothing changed. I had changed, but I had not been able to supercharge my coworkers in any meaningful way. What can you do in a situation like this? These are the three steps I took. Tolerate, innovate, and wait. Let's talk about the first. Tolerate. When I came back from my first conference, the Smashing Conference, my boss stopped by to ask about my trip. Let's face it, most conferences are more informational than they are inspirational. If they weren't at a cool location... Most of us wouldn't want to go. So my boss was expecting a a three-minute summary. When I was bursting with excitement, he gave me some extra time at a team meeting to talk to the rest of the group. It's all but impossible to distill the ideas and energy from a successful conference into a single meeting. But you really have to try. Most of you aren't going to have the advantage either that the speakers at the conference did of standing up on a stage while having your thoughts projected on a giant screen behind you. Talking is very important. I I like the idea that Paul Boag had of encouraging us to speak more because that's really the only way we can tell our managers that we're actually doing something. Your best strategy is to try and get as much time as possible to share your ideas with your department and others. You've got to plant the seed of an idea in management's mind. You may only get a mild reaction, but don't let that discourage you. Speaking is important because it it forces you to summarize your experiences, pick out the best of what you've seen, and that lays the foundation of the work to follow. Use the last bit of your post-conference energy to push your ideas out into your company. Some of the best ideas from the conference may not work at your company. (laughs) For example, at one of the Smashing Conferences, I attended a workshop held by graphic designer Stefan Sagmeister. He shuts his entire company down every seven years, for a year-long sabbatical. It energizes him and the employees so much that they have ideas for the next seven years, and they're just as much in demand when they return. I work for a very large corporation, and as much as I would like, they're not going to shut down the company every seven years uh, so that we can all have a sabbatical. This is all part of the tolerate stage. I summarized, wrote, and presented the parts of the conference that excited me the most. I planted the seeds. I had to accept that some of the ideas were not possible in my current company. I had to tolerate the lack of change that followed. Now it was time to innovate. At this point, I really felt like I had failed at energizing my co-workers. But that didn't mean I couldn't start incorporating some of the things that I had learned at the conference into my own work. I started taking typography more seriously. I practiced sketch notes. I worked to incorporate beauty into my designs. I expanded my interest in my company beyond my department. My company... Uh, builds and rents apartments in places like New York City. I went to a talk at the American Institute of Architects about new uses for structural steel in multifamily housing. Sounds a bit dull, but it was really very exciting. My boss immediately questioned this, since he said, Wayne, this really has nothing to do with anything you do at work. I'm a web designer. And he said, I don't want to discourage you, but I don't think the company is going to be able to reimburse you for this. I went anyway, and I learned about some great building techniques used at buildings in New York City. One of these buildings was just a block away from two of our properties in New York City. Now I know a little bit more about our company and the types of challenges and competition we have, and my expenses were fully reimbursed. Maybe I couldn't change the company, but I could innovate and make my own work life much more fulfilling. That gave me the patience to get through to the last phase, which was wait. I continued to innovate at my desk, and during the year, I would occasionally send to co-workers in marketing some articles or websites that I found of particular interest. As I mentioned before, at the Smashing Conference, uh, one of the Smashing Conferences, I went to a workshop by Stefan Sagmeister. It was entitled, How to Touch Someone's Heart with Design we had this exercise where we were supposed to create something that would touch the heart of a coworker that we knew very little about. I worked just outside of Washington, D.C., and I picked our marketing director. The only things I knew about her was that she was from New York City, she missed New York City, and she had a dog. <laughs> so I drew this cartoon of the manager and her dog, playing with a ball in Central Park. And I, the New York skyline was in the background, and I wrote, New York misses you. When I got back, I was supposed to give this card to her, and I was very uncomfortable about doing this. I hardly knew the person. I went up to her office, hoping that she wasn't going to be there, but she was. And she surprised me by asking immediately about the conference and how it was so that gave me a little bit of courage and i handed her the card she was so touched when she saw the card that she got up out of her desk walked around and gave me a big hug that was something i was not expecting i'm really not much of a hugger so I kind of stood there awkwardly while she was had her arms around me but wow what an impact it it had had on me I had no idea that you know something small like this could have such a big impact on a person she told me she couldn't wait to share it with her fiance and coworkers because of that I was then asked to speak to the entire marketing department, including the vice president, for an hour at a lunch and learn. So I had an hour to talk to marketing. This is what I had been waiting to do. I put a huge amount of effort into this, and it was very well received. People approached me afterwards with follow-up questions and The vice president in my department was informed about how much marketing appreciated the talk. This year, marketing has already asked me before I've even gone to the conference if I would speak to them afterward. They also think that the talk should be opened up to a group beyond marketing. And my boss in my department agrees It was really a long wait, but I'm pleased with the results. I've established a reputation as someone who can think outside of the box, and now I'm getting the kind of projects that excite me. Tolerate, innovate, and wait. That's the formula. Don't lose the sparks of inspiration generated at the conferences you go to. Save them, share them, use them, and wait. You won't be disappointed.
0: So go on then, Marcus, justify. Why was that your favourite talk? Um, for many reasons, but the best
1: bit uh, was the end bit when he took it on himself to uh, basically uh, go and see the marketing director. I can't remember who it was. But oh, yeah. she, and she ended up hugging him. Yeah. And it's like, that... Oh. that was how you really get things done. It's yeah. about using your brain, caring, uh, understanding what makes people tick. All of those kind of things, rather than just this expectation of I've been to a conference and I've learned stuff, and you must listen to me because it's brilliant. Yeah. Um, it uh, just. Uh, th- I suppose that was his weight bit, but it wasn't really. It was. Um, it was the fact that he did something. You know, out of the ordinary, and suddenly everybody's listening and paying attention, and just wow! Just I thought that was
0: uh, it's also human moment, yeah, and it's that empathy moment as well. Yeah, instead of it being yeah, like you say, it's that that kind of. It's easy to go back and go. We should be doing all of this, but what by applying it to other people by by showing other people how it could have an impact on them and being human about it, you mm-hmm. know. It's like the... It reminded me of this talk for some reason. It's not directly, but it reminded me of this talk of, um, of, of, of Jared Spool's article about how you can't convince an executive to care about um, UX. Yeah. And, and how he says what you've got to do is find out what they already care about. And yes. I often think that's the same principle when you hear a talk. You have to... Not just tell them the talk and what happened, but apply that talk to how it could benefit them in their job and in their situation. Um, You know, and uh, uh, this is obviously an area I'm really into because this whole idea of motivating colleagues that led to my UX culture cards that I send out you know and that kind of thing also another thing that i'm a fan of is is drip feeding bits and pieces from a conference rather than hitting everybody hitting people with it all at once which can be a bit overwhelming um, to instead drip feedback so it's like most speakers at a conference either have written on the similar subject at some point you could send articles to uh, to your colleagues over a period of time or also a lot of speakers put their talks online as well so being able to actually send those those to people as well is a really mm. good thing the second th-
1: reason why i like that talk so much mm. which, which is it, the the first part was the most important part, but the second one is it reminded me of great talks that I've been to mm. in conferences that were really inspirational. The the most inspirational of all was, uh, I think it was my first South by Southwest, which was, I don't know, 2008, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was Jim Coodle and Brendan Dawes just talking about being creative, really. And um, uh, Brendan Dawes was talking about his film things that he did. And Jim Coodle was talking about a couple of different businesses that he would set up, one which flopped, which one which went on to kind of do quite well. And it was just the way they and I think this is because I, because I'm effectively a business owner it they were talking about having the freedom to do this sort of thing and mm. we've never we've never really che- we, we've tried loads of things over the years at headscaping you know stuff that I've learned about how other people run companies we've tried four day weeks here and things like that and that didn't work and that's fair enough but it was just that particular talk by Codel uh, and Dawes Got me thinking about that kind of thing, and mm. it was at the time hugely inspirational and I still think about things in the way that they you know their their presentation their talk uh, you know this was in the style of so and that's ten years ago nearly now. Wow. So, yeah really um important stuff that can be very very inspirational, but that's more just that was sort of a personal thing to me rather than the kind of the idea of of, of you know getting the feeling across when you get back that's that's a different thing entirely but it was just great to kind of be but th- to re- be reminded of that kind of thing
0: it does remind you about how important it is to go to conferences every now and again oh yeah going and, to one in barcelona paul i'm looking forward to that mm, so am i <laughs> not long now <laughs> no. i probably ought to prepare something for that <laughs> but I, I've, I've got a holiday soon that's more important going off to Ooh. canada yay well, that's nice. Mm.
1: Any particular reason why Canada?
0: Um, we w- we're going to take a, a cruise up to Alaska and see the glaciers and all that kind of stuff. So, which is very mm. cool. And also, that my um, Kath and James have never been to west coast of Canada. So, um, and I went there on a business trip for a, a few years back, and yeah. um, I, I really wanted to show it to them. So, yeah, that's Fair. what I'm I'm doing soon. How lovely! Which is why we're finishing this season. Talking mm-hmm. of which, <laughs> I'm going to Cornwall. Oh, <laughs> which is lovely. It is lovely, especially this yeah. time of year if the weather's yeah. like it has been at the moment. It'd be blooming great. I know. I did try and transition there into. I know,
1: but I wasn't going to let you. No, because you, you had, had a hol- you had a holiday thought, so I had to have one too. Uh,
0: okay, fair enough. <laughs> it's like so competitive, aren't you? <laughs> not really. No, not when you come back with Cornwall. Um, <laughs> although, actually, I suspect people in in many parts of the world would dearly love to go to Cornwall. Mm. Arthur and, you know, the Round Table and all that stuff. Is that I'd, Cornwall? That was I'd,
1: more Somerset, wasn't it?
0: Is it? I was yeah, it was I
1: think so. Well
0: oh, anyway, whatever.
1: I think um, Camelot was... Nobody really knows, but they think it was around um, Glastonbury Way, which I'm sure is Somerset.
0: Was it actually a real place? I thought it was all bullshit. Yeah, I'm not sure. Right. Anyway, yes. the next season of the podcast was what I was mm. going to talk about. It's going to kick off on the 12th of October. So, so we've got a break now to the 12th of October. Um, and it's, the next season is going to be on content marketing, which is very cool. We've got loads of stuff lined up. We've already got a few guests. And our first episode, when we come back, is going to be about podcasting which we've never talked about podcasting on the show are you sure um
1: no (laughs) i'm not sure because we have done about five thousand episodes now so i bet we have talked about podcasting at some point
0: ah but we haven't talked about it with colin gray you don't even know who colin gray is do you
1: is he the guy based up in scotland who we had on the show about a thousand episodes ago
0: oh did we Have we had him on the show before? I don't know. I'm making that up. You've got the Scotland bit right. So, yeah, maybe. Anyway, he's he's an expert in all things podcasting. We can
1: ask him, have you been on the show before? Yes,
0: because then we'll know whether we've talked about podcasting before. Indeed. So, we'll find out. Anyway, we're kicking off on the 12th of October. If you fancy supporting the show like our wonderful spot, uh, sponsors this season or even if you're slightly curious about um, podcast advertising and how it might help your business you can find out more at boagworld.com forward slash advertise forward slash podcast sponsorship i've never said that before i've never actually asked for sponsors i'm asking for sponsors there we go marcus you got a joke to finish us off on
1: i have this is from martin fraser on the Um, Boag World Bad Jokes Channel. (sighs) Jokes about white sugar are rare. Jokes about brown sugar, Demerara.
0: (laughs) Demerara. If you Uh, too want to see the quality jokes (laughs) on the Boag World Slack channel, you can go to boagworld.com forward slash slacking and sign up. But really, that's
1: a good joke. Come on. That is a
0: good joke. I did like that one the only reason I didn't laugh more to be honest is I saw it on the bad I need to stop looking at the bad joke slack channel yeah don't look I won't look because it ruins it you don't get a real reaction from me no anyway that is it for this season thank you to all 35 um, speakers that contributed to uh, this season I'm really pleased that we managed to squeeze everybody in which has been great Uh, really high standard I've been blown away and we definitely but for now, thank you for listening. Oh, goodbye.
1: Goodbye. Goodbye.